What makes for a lasting church? What makes for a lasting church? Is it a commitment to the truth of God's word and to upholding sound doctrine? Is it a bold allegiance to Christ and an unwillingness to compromise? Is it moral purity, a distinctiveness from the surrounding culture? Is it a hatred both of sinful living and of false teaching? Now, all of those things are praiseworthy. They are arguably necessary. A church can have all of those traits and still not be a church that lasts. A church must also have love. Without love for God and love for one another, a church will not last. Without love for God and love for one another, Cornerstone Bible Church will not last. There may still be doors that are open and messages given, even elders present and offerings taken and people attending. But without love, we will not be a lasting church. At least, a lasting church that fulfills its purpose as a church that gives light. A church that gives light that leads to Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to see from Jesus' warning in Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7, that we must love if we're going to be a lasting church. So let's read that passage. I'll read that passage. Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Lord, this morning, uh, we are humbled uh, by Jesus. Everything really Jesus says about this church is very positive. They had all kinds of strengths. And yet, Lord, a huge indictment that they had left their first love. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be guarding our hearts, examining our hearts, and repenting where necessary, Lord. We want to be those uh, who evidence through the course of our lives that we are overcomers, Lord. That people who can look forward to uh, eating of the tree of life in heaven. I pray, Lord God, that we would be uh, here at Cornerstone Bible Church, a church that both is lasting, but also a church that gives light, uh, that brings people to you and brings glory to your Father. In Jesus' name, amen. By God's grace, Cornerstone Bible Church has many positive, uh, has many positive char- characteristics. It has a solid statement of faith which I'm very thankful for, and by, by God's grace, a, a biblical philosophy of ministry. There's multiple eldership here of, of godly men. There's expository preaching. I'm very thankful for our prayer ministry, that time of prayer that we have in the first Sunday of the month, which is coming up next week. There's a willingness to sacrifice here. I've seen that in your lives. Faithful servants, generous hearts. I love our care group ministry. I love the commitment to missions that we have. 
And this is a church that by God's grace has survived some very hard times. But, but these things aren't enough of themselves to be a church that keeps bringing glory to God. A real church must keep loving. Today we're going to look at the first of Jesus' letters uh, to seven first century churches of Asia Minor. So they're in, in modern day Turkey. Written by uh, the book of Revelation is written by the Apostle John. These seven letters in, recorded in Revelation 2 and 3 are the actual words of the living and reigning Jesus Christ to real churches that existed in real cities. And that's pretty exciting. Together, they're like finding a box of letters in the attic. You can read them expecting to discover truths about their author, even if the exact situation in which they were written in has passed. And yet, unlike a box of letters that you can find in your attic, the, the author is all-knowing. And he knows that you would be here today listening to this letter. Now, each of these seven letters reveal some of Jesus' expectations for our church. All of them apply to Cornerstone Bible Church. So today, we come to listen to Jesus. To listen to both his approval and rebuke of a church 2,000 years ago so that we can learn what he requires of us, his people, here this morning. And by listening to Jesus, we will learn how to both escape the warning he threatens and enjoy the future he promises. Both escape the warning he threatens, but also enjoy the future he promises. From this first letter, we'll see five characteristics of the church that not only lasts, but also fulfills its purpose as a light that glorifies Jesus Christ. Now, the author of these letters, Jesus, is dramatically revealed in Revelation 1, verses 10 through 18. I'm going to read that to you because it so uh, sets up uh, who's writing these letters to, to us. So John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day on Sunday, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength." When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. What a powerful vision of Jesus there. Jesus is revealed in his power in his wisdom, in his victory, in his judgment. This is not some bobblehead Jesus on someone's dashboard. This is not the Jesus represented in our children's Bibles. This is a Jesus that's not to be trifled or toyed with. A Jesus that we have to listen to. This vision of Jesus would be encouraging to the Christians at the end of the first century who were going through persecution, even death, for their commitment to Christ. They needed to see this kind of Jesus. 
They needed to see the victorious Christ so that they would persevere and overcome, so that they would continue in their faith. They would need to remember who Jesus is right now as he is in heaven. It brings us to our first point. The lasting church remembers Jesus' sovereign presence. If you're taking notes there from verse 1 of chapter 2, we're going to see the the lasting church remembers Jesus' sovereign presence. And if we're going to be a lasting church that brings glory to Jesus Christ, we need to be a church that remembers Jesus' sovereign presence. At the, uh, each of these letters begins really with an interpretive challenge. So it starts off, I'm going to say it a, a little difficult. It says, to the angel of the church... So we're left with a question. Do we have an angel here? Uh, and I don't know. There's a possibility that angel here means messenger, which could refer to, well, the word angel always means messenger. It could refer to uh, someone in the church who brings God's word to the people, like one of the elders, or maybe someone who is physically carrying the letter to that church. But it's also possible it's an angel, uh, which is how angel is used in Revelation, as not surprisingly, angel. Um, But either way, the angel here functions as some kind of representative or a messenger. And I've got some some other uh, verses, if you want to explore that more, we can talk about it. I kind of lean towards it being an angel. It's a little odd, a little different, but there we have it. The real point, though, is what God has preserved to the church of Ephesus, and that this letter comes from Jesus. The letter begins... uh, with a description of Jesus that refers back to John's vision. Oh, but, but, but before we go there, we want to look first at what the, something about the church of Ephesus. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. So what do we know about this? Uh, uh, what do we know about Ephesus? It's one of the most po- powerful cities in the ancient world. It was known for its worship, its worship of Artemis, the goddess of fertility. It was a city that was full of prostitution. The temple there was one of the uh, world's seven ancient wonders, bigger than a football field, 60 feet high. It was a city that was fascinated with, with black magic and sorcery, where they worshipped the, 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 the emperor. When the church was founded there, the people had to repent of their magic arts, and they brought their scrolls with their spells and, and burned them. So many people in the city were getting saved that the worship of Artemis in the city was being threatened. So riots followed Paul as he established the church there. Later, Paul would return to that young church and spend three years there in Ephesus. Ephesus was a well-founded church. Paul spent time there. Uh, Timothy was sent there by Paul. Church history tells us that the apostle John went there. No church has really ever been cared for. Eight letters of the New Testament were written to that church there. It's possible. These were the best elders ever. We've got, I'm really thankful for the elders we have here. But, you I mean, they had Paul and Timothy, Apostle John. That's a pretty good crew. Well, this very well cared for church with this, with this incredible legacy. And really, by this time, many of those original converts had probably passed on to be with Christ. This church here uh, that Jesus writes to, he describes himself this way. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven gold, the golden lampstand says this. And we just saw that picture of Jesus in Revelation 1.20. A lampstand was a stand for a small oil lamp to rest on and to give more light. It's kind of the same principle of a street light on a pole. You know, you don't just put it on the ground, you put it up in the air. It's a lamp on a lampstand. 
Light is a common metaphor in scripture for what's good and true in contrast to the wickedness and the deceitfulness of sin, the uh, blinding effects of sin. We see this in 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 36, those who believe in the light become sons of light. So that we see in scripture here that there's a big contrast between light and darkness and that those who follow Jesus Christ are of the light and that changes the way that we live. We see some of that in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 5, verses 7 through 11. Uh, Paul's talking about, about the works of witness. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what's pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. So there we see this contrast that when we follow Jesus Christ, when we put our faith in him, we become light and then we need to live out that light. I think, though, that what's most clearly behind this picture, as Jesus talks about the lampstand and the lamp and talking about light, is Matthew 5, 14 to 16, Jesus' own words. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So in its nature as a lamp, the church glorifies the very nature of God as light. By our good deeds, we demonstrate the good character of God. We are to be a light that brings attention to God the Father. In actions and speech, the church points to Jesus as the light of the world. So being a light is inseparable from the, from the church's purpose in the world. So when Jesus says that he holds a seven uh, the seven stars, that's referring to, it says, the angels of, of the churches. We see that from, from 120. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw on my right hand, and the seven gold lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here's a picture, really, of Jesus being in charge of his church. The, world, the word for holds here is grasps. The church is in his power, his control. He has the church in his fist. It's tight. No one can pry God's church from the hands of Jesus Christ. The picture of Jesus walking among the lampstands, it represents his care, his oversight, his authority over the churches. It's like a gardener walking through his garden, or maybe a king on a horse riding through his kingdom, kind of looking at his land, evaluating it, measuring it, seeing how it's growing. This is a picture of Jesus in charge, the church in his fist, and he among the, the churches examining it and caring for it. Though in heaven, Jesus is not absent in his church. He is the Lord, both of the universal church that is around the whole globe, and also in individual churches, like this church in Ephesus and the church here in Fullerton. He promised the disciples in Matthew 28, 20. Jesus said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And this really is an often repeated promise straight from the heart of the Old Testament, what it means to be God's people. In Leviticus 26, 12, God says, I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. So as Jesus is walking among the churches, it's really a picture of, of God's graciousness in being with his people. And that's encouraging for this church here today. 
Jesus holds this church in his power today. He grasps it in his hand. No one can pry Jesus' fingers off of his church. He hasn't left this church. He's watching over it. It is his church. And we must remember that Jesus is sovereign and present. He is Lord over his church. Jesus knows what we need. And he knows what's threatening our church, Cornerstone Bible Church, today. Now, the Lord's sovereign presence is a comfort, but it's also a warning. He's caring for it, but he's also monitoring it. Have you been aware of the Lord's presence? That's true when we're assembled together, but also in our lives as individuals. He's guarding us, but he's also evaluating us. He's not distant. He's present. He's aware. He's close. His reign extends right here to our lives. Are you being comforted by his sovereign presence, by his rule over this church? It is in his hands, not just in the rocky times, but today as well. Cornerstone Bible Church is his church. That's what the lasting church needs to remember. The lasting church remembers Jesus' sovereign presence. He reminds them, you are in my hand and I'm walking among you. The lasting church also is a church that toils and endures. The lasting church toils and endures. Jesus said, I know your deeds. We see that in verse 2. I know your deeds. Deeds refer to the course of their life, to their conduct. Now, Jesus' knowledge is perfect and complete. There's no miscalculation on his part. He never needs to reappraise. He's the perfect judge. No one else is. He knows your deeds, and he knows the deeds of this church. Now, for sometimes we can be like, oh, no, he knows everything I do, and that can be uh, disturbing to us. But for the church at Ephesus, Jesus knowing their works wasn't a bad thing. And by God's grace, it's not a bad thing for Cornerstone Bible Church. The Lord Jesus approves in verse 2, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. The church was a morally upright and doctrinally pure church. It says in verse 2 continued, And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. The church at Ephesus had worked hard at examining the doctrine of those that were coming into the church. They had been aware of what Jesus said in Matthew 7.15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. For over 40 years, the church had been faithfully guarding against wrong doctrine. And in Acts 20, 29, 31, Jesus said to this same church, I know that after my, I mean, Paul said to, in Acts 20, 20, 20, verses 29 to 31, Paul said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that day and night for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. The Apostle Paul had warned that people are going to rise up from inside you and they're going to speak perverse things. And so he warned them and kept warning them. And this is a church who had listened to that warning. They were on guard. They had resisted the deception. They had founded false teachers to be false. They were wary of the televangelists that they listened to on the television. When they turned on the Christian radio, they were wary. They were aware and when they went into the Christian bookstores. There may not be all good teaching here. Of course, they didn't have TVs and Christian bookstores, but they were on guard, and they'd done good at that job. If we jump down to verse 6, we see some more of Jesus' commendation of them. 
Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know a, a, a lot about them. It seems like there was uh, some kind of false teaching afoot that tried to blend uh, uh, an immoral lifestyle and with the idolatry of, of Ephesus, some kind of synchronistic uh, teaching. But like the church, Jesus hated the conduct of this false doctrine. You, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Good job, Ephesus. Your deeds are good. Your perseverance is good. Your toil is good. And it says, if we go back uh, to verse 3, And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Jesus had promised in Matthew 10, verse 22, You will be hated by all because of my name, but is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. And that was descriptive of the church at Ephesus. They were an enduring church. They were not ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. The saints of Ephesus had no thought of giving in. They weren't going to capitulate to false teaching from within. They weren't going to succumb to persecution from without. They were solid. They were well taught. They were bold. They were morally distinct from the surrounding culture. They were doctrinally pure. They were intolerant of compromise. They were persecuted. They were vigilant. What a remarkable church, right? Their lives were evidence of God's grace. They could have let false teaching in. They could have turned back when the persecution started, but they didn't. They guarded what was entrusted to them. They were a faithful church. From Jesus' commendation here, we see what God expects from his church. To be on guard against doctrinal error. To be wary of those claiming to teach God's truth. To hate the works of wicked men. To patiently endure in the midst of persecution. By God's grace, I think that Cornerstone Bible Church has many of these, char- these characteristics here as a church. We are concerned about being doctrinally pure. We are concerned about being morally pure. We are a church that by God's grace has persevered this far. By God's grace. But despite Jesus' positive recommendations, I mean accommodations, the existence of the church at Ephesus was in jeopardy. It wasn't from the external threats of, uh, of false teachers or persecution, but it was an internal threat. This brings us to our third thing that a lasting church needs to do. It does need to remember Jesus' sovereign presence. It does need to toil and endure to be morally pure, to hate false teaching. But the lasting church loves. The lasting church loves. In Revelation 2, 4, again, some sobering words from the mouth of Jesus himself. But I have this against you, that you have left your first loved. And we'll spend the majority of, of the time here. We're going to have two more points after this, but the majority will be here. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. It's not enough to hate wickedness and false doctrine. It's essential, but it's not enough. The church at Ephesus had left, had forsaken even abandoned their first love. Now, it doesn't mean that they had gone on to their second love. Rather, they didn't love as at first. And I think it's referring to it at their conversions. They didn't love as at first. Now, commentators have struggled whether this is a love of God or a love for his people. But ultimately, and we, we saw this with the Philippians 1 passage uh, a while back. Ultimately, we know from scriptures that this love is inseparable. Anyone who loves God will love his brothers. 
1 John 4, 7, 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So those loves are, are, are inseparable. We cannot love God and not love one another. Well, how did this happen? How did this great church in Ephesus, really, we look at it, this is a church surviving persecution. How did this great church in Ephesus, how did they come to abandon this love? It wasn't by a doctrinal error. It wasn't a moral error. They weren't overlooking some grotesque sin. It was probably more of a, a subtle slide. It, it wasn't as if, you know, in, in a marriage, as if someone just abandons their spouse and goes and has an affair. It's more that they had begun to, in that picture, to just to ignore their spouse, to stop appreciating their spouse, to just forgetting, but just kind of taking their gift as natural, just forgetting. Perhaps, and, and the verses don't tell us exactly, but perhaps they'd forgotten how holy God is and how offensive our sins are. Uh, Jesus says uh, to, to, uh, in Luke seven forty seven, For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven loves little. He who is forgiven little loves little. When we recognize that our love is drifting, it is because we've forgotten what we've been forgiven of. Ephesians 2, 3 through 5 describes just such a, a dark picture of what we've been forgiven of. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when, when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. When our love for Christ starts to slide, we have forgotten that. We have forgotten the horrible situation that we were in, how we were enslaved. We've forgotten the richness of God's grace. Perhaps this church in Ephesus had forgotten to meditate on the blessings of, of, of salvation. We don't have time to read now Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. But the blessing of election, the blessing of adoption, the blessing of being loved by God, the blessing of redemption, the blessing of forgiveness, the blessing of God's grace. In 1 John four nineteen, we know why we love God. We love because he first loved us. Titus 3, uh, 3 through 7, uh, or, or I'll start up at 4. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is how we're going to keep loving as we first loved, is by spending time with verses like that and remembering what it is, the blessing of having God's Spirit regenerating us and renewing us, the blessing of being justified by His grace. Perhaps they had forgotten how offensive their sins were or how rich the blessings of salvation were. Perhaps they had let other desires creep in to grow and choke out a love for the Lord. 1 John 2, 15-17 describes this. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives lives forever. We see there that as a love of the world and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life are 
in our hearts that the love of the Father can't be there. And I think he's ultimately describing the difference between someone who's saved and not saved. But we have all experienced that as our, we have an increasing love for the things of the world, that the love of the Father gets kind of pushed aside. Maybe that's what was going on in the church of Ephesus. Maybe, as it says in Matthew 13, 22, it describes the seed that was among the thorns that gets choked out, the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth becomes a fruitful. Maybe that's what was going on in Ephesus, worries and the, the deceitfulness of wealth. Perhaps they stopped remembering Jesus Christ. Perhaps they stopped forgetting his presence, stopped forgetting that he's king and shepherd and brother and Lord. Perhaps forgetting that he's light and the vine and resurrection and life and the bread of life. Perhaps they had forgotten what he had done. They had stopped relying on him. They still had a confession of faith, but they weren't living by faith. They began to take him for granted. Kind of had turned Jesus into a a punched ticket to heaven. Now, when this happens in our affections for Christ, when our affections for the Father, when we forget God's grace that brings us salvation, we become proud in our relationships with one another. We start thinking somehow that, that we deserve this right standing that we have with God, and we stop loving others. When we, when we let other desires choke out our love for the Lord, we become selfish in our relationships with, with one another too. If, if we think that we just deserve more and that we're just here to enjoy more, then why not be selfish with one another? We see people then as the means to our ends. We see life is about us. Gone, somehow, were the days of deep humility and gratitude and pure devotion to Christ. Gone were the days of sacrificial love for one another. And I, and I don't mean just their friends that they knew really well, but for the whole body. John 13, 34, 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This was eradicating Ephesus. They were still doctrinally pure. They were still morally pure. But that love was, was, was shifting. And it, they didn't have that love. Now, Jesus doesn't leave them without hope of reconciliation. He calls on them to repent. We see that in verse 5. Therefore, this is what you're going to do about this. Remember from where you have fallen. And that's the first of three commands he gives there. Remember from where you have fallen. The first one, remember. It doesn't just say look back and regret from where you were. It's not just feel bad and boy, those were some great days when you were first saved. Instead, stir the fires of your devotion. Stir up the embers of that fire. Be active. Reflect on the reality of the blessing which are yours and then act in love. This is an ongoing command to hold in our memory. Hold in our memory right now. What has the Lord Jesus saved you personally from? Where were you going? Where would you have gone? What had you done and what would you have done? What about God's grace used to make you linger in prayer? to burst out even in song during your quiet times when it was still fresh to you? What about the gospel? The good news of Jesus Christ thrilled your soul. What was so amazing that you couldn't stop telling people about him? He told them, remember from where you've fallen. And then two, he says, second command here, repent. We see that in verse five. Remember from where you have fallen, how great it was, and repent. 
Now this is our responsibility. This means we're guilty of something. It's not just, oh, it just kind of faded away over time. This is something we have to repent about. We have to change our minds. We have to submit to God's standard. Next time Pastor John preaches, it'll be at Mark 12, 30. God's standard of loving the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's what we have to repent of, not loving him in that kind of way. We have to turn from what's driving out our affections for him. Maybe it's our ambitions. Maybe it's our hobbies. Maybe it's our concerns and worries. We have to fill our thoughts instead with his grace. Fill our thoughts with his mercy to us in Jesus Christ. We have to turn from our idols and turn to him to meditate on him and his work and his benefits and our future with him. And, 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 and to get those things, and that's what we're going to be talking about in the second hour, how to meditate, to get those truths deep into our soul again where they used to just flourish. So he calls on them in verse 5 to remember. He calls on them to repent. And then he says, do the deeds you did at first. It's not just actions. These are acts prompted by love. They were already doing actions, right? They were already doctrinally pure and morally pure. They were toiling. They were enduring. But they weren't loving. So what works did you do when you first came to know him that were motivated by love? How eager were you to be at church and to pick up your Bible and read and to meet with your brothers and sisters for a meal or to pray with your brothers and sisters in Christ and to get to know new faces at church, to share the gospel with family members, all those things that you first did when you're like, this is amazing, God rescued me, I don't deserve this. You guys remember that. Jesus is saying it's time to get back to being a disciple. It's time to get back to picking up your cross and following, to taking his yoke upon you and learning from him because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Don't you miss it? The getting up early to be with him, not because you have to, but because you still remember it's still fresh to you. Or that meditating on his word as you fall asleep because it's delicious. Jesus follows his call to repentance with a strong warning in verse 5. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Wow. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. If they didn't remember, if they didn't repent, if they didn't do the actions they did at first, Jesus would come and shut down the church. There would be no more church in Ephesus. Maybe there'd still be a Christian religion there. Maybe some moral people who had right doctrine they were very happy about. But there would not be a true church there. A church that belongs to Jesus. If a church continues to forsake loving the Father and Son, and it continues to forsake loving one another, there's no church left. Because why? There's not saved people there. Because that's what saved people do. Right? Everything First John says, it's an encouraging book. But that's what saved people do. They love God and they love one another. And when we lose our first love, we are in danger. Not of losing our salvation, we know that, that can't happen, but of demonstrating we are not saved. Where there is no lamp, there is no need for a lampstand. Saved people love. And loveless people are not saved. First John 4, 16 says this. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We know we have an ongoing, continuing, abiding relationship with God because we love. We love him, and he 
abides with us in 1 John 2.10. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. He calls them to love one another and to love God. And that's what abiding in the light is. That's what remaining in the light is. Now, there are many that have a strong initial response to the gospel. And, and, And the parable of the sower shows that. But what the Lord requires is lifelong, till he returns, that kind of first love. Doctrine is not enough. A testimony we can look back on is not enough. Service is not enough. Purity is not enough. All those are essential, but they are not sufficient. If Cornerstone Bible Church will persevere as a real church, a lamp on a lampstand, there must be love. Love at first love. Jesus doesn't make an empty threat here, right? He says, I'm coming to you. Love or be snuffed out. Be my all or you will be nothing at all. God's purpose was never for his people to be a light of doctrines and morals, but a light to himself. What kind of light are we if he's not first in our affections? And then right after him, as he's first in our affections, if you are first in my affections, that's a light to Jesus Christ. That's the only way that a church will light the way to the Lord is if they love him and his people as he requires. At the end of the day, Jesus is calling them to follow through on their conversion. If not, Ephesus would be left without a light. And if not, Cornerstone Bible Church will be left without a light. Would Jesus say to you, I have this against you. You don't love me as you once did. You don't love me as you once did. Have you forgotten the extent of his mercy? Have you forgotten how much you've been forgiven? Remember, repent, and do the deeds you did at first. This is what a lasting church does. A lasting church remembers Jesus' sovereign presence. A lasting church toils and endures. A lasting church loves. And a lasting church listens. In Revelation 2, 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As Jesus closes his letter to the church of Ephesus, he calls to the individual. He who has an ear, let him hear. Jesus addressed his letter to the whole church, but through God the Son, the Spirit was speaking to all the churches, including this church here. And he's speaking to individuals of Cornerstone Bible Church as well. The plea that Jesus says is to listen. He who has an ear, let him hear. It's a plea to all of us who are here now. It's an invitation for all of us to act. It's especially to those who consider themselves spiritual, though, who regard themselves as able to hear. The ones who get the gospel. He who has an ear. If you think that you have an ear, I get the gospel. I'm saved. I know this. It's especially to you. Are you getting what Jesus is saying? Have Jesus' words penetrated? Have they sunk in? Are you listening? Are we listening? You and I can't afford to ignore or dismiss Jesus' words to the church at Ephesus. The one who is most confident that they are saved may be surprised. Right? We see that. Matthew 7, the ones who are most confident. Lord, Lord, look what we've done in your name. The ones who are most confident that they're saved may be surprised. But the one who loves Jesus as he did at first will never be surprised. Amen? The one who loves Jesus as he did at first will never be surprised. 
Keep loving him like you did when you were first saved. And if you have not been saved, Jesus Christ is wonderful. He is the best king. He is the best Lord. He is able to save. He is willing to save. He is willing to forgive all who come to him and say, I have no other hope. I've never loved you as my first love. If you need to be saved, come to Jesus Christ. Really, you're surrounded by people who can point you to what that saving faith means. Come to Jesus Christ. He is a good king. Now, the hearing here isn't passive hearing. This is the kind of hearing that responds, that acts, that does. It's not listening that turns on the radio as soon as we get back in our car. It's not the kind of hearing that drowns out the voice of Jesus by getting online or by turning on the television. It's listening that evaluates, that ponders, that meditates, that discusses, that prays. That's what this listening is. And that's what the church that lasts does. The church that lasts listens to what Jesus says. They do not plug up their ears when he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We must not ignore this. So, the lasting church is one that remembers Jesus' sovereign presence, one that toils and endures, one that loves, one that listens, and last, one that hopes in Jesus' promises. The lasting church hopes in Jesus' promises, and Jesus gives a sweet promise here. To him who overcomes, I will grant, at the end of verse 7, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We, we know about that tree of life, right? It, it was in the garden of Eden. Adam and Eve did not get to eat of that tree of garden. In fact, it looks as if God even protected them from eating that tree of life after their fall so that they wouldn't forever be separated from God. He puts an angel to guard that tree of life. But that tree of life makes a reappearance after the Garden of Eden. And Revelation 22, 1-2 shows us where that tree of life is. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. So talking uh, uh, about heaven. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healings of the nations. Described in, in Revelation 2-7 here, the scene as the paradise of God, the garden of God, the tree of life is in heaven in God's paradise. Now, not everyone we know is going to eat of this tree of life. Revelation twenty-two fourteen describes those who eat of this tree of life. Blessed are those who wash their robes, who have their sins forgiven, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Only those who can eat forever of that fruit and live forever with God in heaven, who are participating forever, fulfilling really what God designed for people in the first place, to be with him, worshiping and loving him forever, are those who have their sins forgiven. And Jesus describes those people here in the second half of 7 as those who overcome. These are the victorious ones. These are the prevailing ones. These are the conquering ones. They are those who cannot bear with those who are evil, like the church of Ephesus. They are those who guard against false doctrine. They are those who endure patiently and bear up for Jesus' sake. They are those who continue without growing weary. And they are those who remember, repent, and return to the first love. Will you be one who remembers, repents, and does the works you did at first? Will you return to your first love if you've begun to drift? Will you be an overcomer who eats of the fruit of the tree of life? The choice is either to love fiercely and to win eternally, or to love weakly and lose eternally. What will you do today? What is your resolve? Is it to remember, to repent, and to do the deeds you did at first? 
Now, many of us know the children's song, This Little Light of, me, light, this little light of Mine, I'm Going to Let It Shine, right? Many of us know that song. Some of you may be seeing the semi-strange line, Don't let Satan blow it out, I'm going to let it shine. Right? Don't let Satan blow it out. What's going on there? Well, today in Revelation 2, we saw something serious. It's not Satan who's going to blow out the light of an individual church. It's the Lord Jesus who takes away a church's lampstand. The right doctrine alone won't keep the lamp of CBC lit. Hating evil alone won't keep our lamp lit. Hard work and right actions won't keep our lamp lit. If our lamp as a church is going to remain lit so that we're a light, it will be because we love God the Father, because we love his Son, and because we love his people, like we did when we were first saved. This is the kind of church that lasts and lights, bringing glory to God the Father. Let's pray. Lord God, we are humbled by this warning that Jesus gives to a church that was doing everything right. They were bold. They were being persecuted. Persecuted. They were different. They were morally pure. They were doctrinally pure. They hated false doctrine. And yet, they had left their first love. They didn't love you as they did at first. They had somehow forgotten either the extent of their sinfulness or the glories of salvation or the sweetness of knowing Christ. Or they had let other uh, loves uh, get in the way. And we pray, Father, that that would not be true of our church, Lord. We pray, Father, that we would not be a church that leaves you as our first love. That we wouldn't let other things get in the way. That we would love you more and more with an ever-increasing love. That we would be people who know how to meditate on your word. How to guard our hearts. How to stimulate our affections. How to get truths deep into our hearts, Lord. We pray, Father that we would uh, be a lasting church, Lord. Uh, the church at Ephesus had a great run, uh, at least here for 40 or so years. Lord, we pray uh, to be a church that has that same kind. We pray, Father, not to be like so many churches uh, that close their doors because they leave you as their first love, but that we would be around for as long as till you return that we would be faithful, that we would pass on you as our first love to a next generation of new believers. We would pass on you as our first love to our children, that the children in our homes and the children who are watching our affections would know that you, Jesus Christ, are our first love. You are capable of doing that. We cannot do that apart from your grace. It is your grace that saved us and your grace that's working through us so that we are overcomers, Lord. We are confident that we are, but we want to listen to Jesus' warning. We want to have ears that hear. Please, Lord, give us ears that hear. I pray for each one of us that we have ears that hear. And I pray, Father, for those who do not know yet the sweetness of loving Jesus Christ. Uh, How stern of a warning we get inside the church. How desperate a condition for those who don't even confess you as their love. Lord, please be saving them even this morning. Uh, We thank you so much for the death of Christ in our place. We know, God, we can't earn our way to you. We don't overcome by our own efforts, but that your grace is effective and your grace keeps us loving. And so we want that love in us and we're going to work hard by your grace so that we love you the way we first did. Please help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.